You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I think about, and Lord, even my prayer this morning in this sanctuary was the words of Isaiah. Isaiah said, oh, that God would rent open the heavens, that he would rip them open and come down. And Lord, it's been interesting how all through this praise and worship, we've talked about heaven coming down. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Lord, we praise you. We give you glory. You have inhabited the praises of your people. And, Lord, we love you. Uh, Jesus, we just thank you for all the blessings that you give us. Father God, you've stretched out the universe. You've placed every star, every planet, every asteroid, every meteor. You hold the universe from one end to the other. You encompass it. You've breathed into the dust, flesh, and made man into a living soul. You've given him a will, the ability to make choices. You've given him the opportunity to experience and know the love of his creator. And we praise you for that. You alone are worthy. There is no one like Jehovah, Yahweh, Elohim, our God, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray now that you continue to speak through your word. And we pray that hearts would be made sensitive, that you've brought us here by divine appointment, and that already you've spoken to us, and you'll continue to do so. Lord, cleanse me. Take away any thought, any deed, any idle word, dear Lord. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, let me be a vessel that you can speak through today. And we praise you and we give you the glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much, praise team. If you have your Bibles, I want you to take them and turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2. You go over there in the Old Testament, right past Ezra, and you'll come to this book called Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning at uh, verse 11. And I've titled the message today, Somebody Do Something. Somebody Do Something. How many of you love to go to a garage sale and look for something to fix up? How many of you like an old uh, antique store or secondhand shop or those places where you can go and see a piece of old furniture and the first thing you want to do, you begin to see all the potential in that piece of furniture. You begin to think to yourself, man, if you could just strip away some of that, some of that old paint, those layers of paint, if you could begin to, to, to move some of that dirt and grime and debris, there's probably something beautiful up under that piece of furniture. I remember when Sheila and I, we were living with the kids, we were in England, and I was pastoring a church called, in Bodmin, England. And 
they had an old, this church was just run down, I mean, run down. It was just, it was just horrible, in horrible shape. They were trash in the corners. It needed painting. It was built back in the 1800s. It had a blue door. I'll never forget this. In this old British community, it had a blue door. It just stood out. And I thought to myself, you know, uh, uh, well, I, I begin to paint. I, I, I painted the walls. Uh, I began to fix up, toting off garbage, cleaning up rooms. And uh, this was a church they had really voted to close. And I had talked them into keeping it open. And we began to fix that church up. And uh, we had a couple of senior adults. They'd walk in and they would cry when they walked in. And I asked one of them one day, I said, why are you crying? She said, we've just not smelled paint in this building in many, many, many years. We thought our church was going to die. But I remember that blue door. And so one day I had a friend of mine, a man in the church who was familiar with furniture, and I thought to myself, I wonder what's up under that door in this old English building, this old, you know, this, in this British community. You can just, it looked like something out of a postcard. So I took a heat gun and I began to heat that paint up and fill up, I began to peel that blue, that, that paint, that that, and then up under that was another layer, up under that was another layer. Just begin to, this stuff began to fall off this door and there came to bear just an exquisite piece of furniture. Sheila's nodding her head because when people came up that day, when they came up to the building and they saw that door for a moment, they were mesmerized by the beauty and the carving and the elaborate detail of that door. Are you that kind of person? Are you the kind of person that you just see the potential? How many of you are familiar with Chip and, I think it's Chip and Joanna Gaines on HGTV? You know, one thing I love about this couple is they are strong followers of Jesus Christ. And, and it's interesting because, you know, they, they take an individual who's looking for a house and they give them a choice between several homes and then Chip and Joanna, and they're just this delightful, enjoyable couple, and they'll see this house and, and, and you can tell they're kind of thinking about how they'd fix it up. And so a couple will finally identify one home and Chip and Joanne will take that house and they will make it just unbelievable. You know, there's always her. She's a beautiful young lady. She's there and they've got a picture of the old house and it's like this big massive blockade in front of, so the couple can't see the new house. And she says, are you ready to see your new home? And all of a sudden she pulls that back and people just sit there just enamored. They can't believe it. Let me say something to you today. That's the kind of Jesus you have. He sees the potential in every single one of us. And he is in the business of cutting away all of the debris and the garb and the grime of the world and seeing the potential of us. And you know what people do sometimes after we've been walking with Christ for a while? Do you know what they do? They can't believe the difference in how we look. You look different. Well, in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11, let's stand in honor of God's word because this is Nehemiah. Nehemiah is going back to Jerusalem under Artaxerxes the king 
who is the king of Persia. He's allowing him to go back. He's sending him back with an army, sending him back with all kinds of provisions, giving everything that he needs for the project. And the project is this, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. I think it's interesting, Reggie. I've never, I've read this many times. He says to rebuild it as if he's rebuilding the entire city. So he goes back here. In, in chapter 2, verse 11, it said, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. Now watch this. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one that I was riding on. In other words, there was only one man on a horse or a donkey, and it's Nehemiah. By, the, by night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. He can't even make it through the rubble. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back, re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone on or what I was doing because as yet I had not said anything, nothing to the Jews or to the priests or to the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins as gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Samballad the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They ask. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We as servants will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Let's pray again. Our heavenly father, we thank you. We love you. And we give this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. You know, rebuilding is always difficult. Right now, many of you, this past week, we uh, Wednesday night, we took up money, we took up some provisions, we took things out of our food pantry, and we sent things down to the flood victims there down in Baton Rouge in that area that is, uh, that is just really suffering right now. And you need, and I need to pray for these people. But, you know, it, it, it takes a lot to rebuild. Already we're seeing on the news those stories of people that are going back into their homes where their homes have been devastated by flood waters. And, and you look at these people and sometimes they just break down, they weep and they cry and their just hearts are broken. It takes a lot to rebuild. It's easier to build than to rebuild. It takes a lot to remodel. In fact, it's expensive. I remember Dr. Stan May, who chaired the missions department at Mid-America Seminary, called me one day. He said, man, you'll never believe. He said, my house caught fire. I said, what happened? He said, we had a candle sitting on the TV. We lit that candle and we forgot to blow it out. 
And he said that the candle melted the TV, caught the TV on fire, and thereby did an enormous amount of damage to his home. But he made this statement. He said, I can't believe after all of the damage how much time and attention and money it took to rebuild. Let me say to you today, rebuilding a life after maybe a painful divorce or job loss or a cutback in the company or some financial crisis is not easy. It's not easy to rebuild. I want you to listen very closely. Sometimes in our life, our lives reach points of ruin. There are things that are wrong. There are things that are not working out. Some of it may even be our fault. It takes God time to rebuild your life and to rebuild my life. It does. Sheila and I years ago, talking about finances years ago, Man, she kind of would take care of the... And she still does. She takes care of the finances. She could be robbing me blind. I wouldn't know it. You know, I don't know anything. I don't want to know. I got enough to worry about. You take care of the finances. But every once in a while, you know, because, you know, our lives are... We have to be very, very careful and frugal with finances. I'd walk in there and Sheila would be sitting at the table... <laughs> Hey, when the bills were laid out in front of her on the table and she was crying, I knew it wasn't good. And she'd look at me and she said, we're in a mess. And I'd say, okay, get out of the way. I'd sit down there and I'd start sorting out the bills, trying to figure out how to get us out of the mess. And one of the first things we would do, we didn't talk, we never, we never, took from God to get out of the mess. We just got out of the mess. And God always took care of us. You know, it takes time sometimes for God to rebuild. It's not easy. In fact, I wrote this down. It's a lot easier to build something new than than to remodel or repair what you have. Our culture has been programmed to throw away. We throw away toasters, coffee makers. We throw away appliances. We throw away marriages. We throw away kids. We throw away parents. We throw away churches. We don't like to figure out how to rebuild, repair, or remodel we just give it up and throw it away. Is that not true? The same is true of church. Sometimes we do the same thing. Helen Keller said this, and I thought it was good. Helen Keller, the woman who had been blind her entire life, said, well, not her entire life, she was actually made blind by a doctor who botched up a procedure on her when she was a baby. But Helen Keller said this, the most pathetic person in the world is someone who has sight but no vision. Nehemiah is returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the city, and he has vision. I love what John O'Leary said in his book, On Fire. He said, vision is worthless without the courage to risk and to, take it and, and to take action. And boy, that's true. You can't rebuild, do anything of value without it costing somebody something. Let me make some statements here. Number one, you may be rebuilding. Right now, you may be picking up the pieces this morning of a relationship, of a marriage, of a home, of your finances, of a job, of your education, your neighborhood. You may be right now rebuilding, picking up the pieces. Let me encourage you to do this. Involve Jesus Christ. Let Him come alongside of you. 
He's the great physician. He is the master builder. Number two, worse, you may have learned to live in the rubble. You remember what Alexander McLaren said. He said when Nehemiah got to the city, he realized the people were discouraged, that they felt defeated. In fact, when Nehemiah is trying to ride around the ruins, remember there are times that he can't even get through the ruins. He has to backtrack, go around to try to figure out how to maneuver around in the city of Jerusalem. Alexander McLaren said the danger is, is that we learn to live with the rubble. We just say it's never going to change. It's always going to be the same. So we just begin to accept it. That is sad. So he's, and, and even worse, number three, even worse, you and I sometimes, listen to this, can be guilty of ourselves tearing down the walls. Let me illustrate. Every one of us need boundaries, right? We need walled-in areas. In fact, boundaries are designed, walls are designed to protect something or someone we value. We put a fence around our yard because we value the protection of our children or our, even our pet. But deeper here, and one writer said this, deeper is this idea that boundaries perimeters in our life can be a schedule where we set aside time for ourselves, for our devotional time with God, time for our marriage when the kids are told go to bed because this is mom and dad's time. We're setting perimeters. We're setting boundaries. We set aside time with our kids when we give our kids individual attention. We set aside time for church, for physical exercise, maybe for a hobby. Some are not as important as others, but we all need boundaries and perimeters in our life to protect our time and to protect those relationships we value. Who tore down the walls of Jerusalem? The enemy. Who tears down those walls, those protective measures in your life, those perimeters, those boundaries? Sometimes you and I have to realize that the enemy is doing that. I sent this to uh, an individual. I saw this wall hanging that read this way. It said, it was a wall hanging, it said, let me drop everything and handle your problem. You ever feel that way with kids? Let me drop everything and handle your problem. That's not always a good quality. Sometimes we would look at that and we say, boy, that, you know that person, they just, they're just so helpful. Well, let me tell you something. The reality is a pastor, let's take a minister. And at times I've had opportunities to teach at, uh, at Mid-America Seminary, at MC to the MDiv to the master level seminary students. A pastor can ruin his life, his marriage, his home, his family, and even in the end his ministry if his attitude is, I'm always available, there are no boundaries, there are no walls. I'm open and I'm here available for everybody. That's not good. If you and your wife are on a date and the job rings, you may be better off not to answer it unless it's an emergency and you're some kind of hospital personnel that is, that is uh, uh, on call. Your job can come inside of the boundaries of your marriage. Am I making sense? 
Parents, let me, let me illustrate it this way. Boundaries, walls are important. Children can define the life of the parent, the schedule of the parent. That Children can dictate their parent's life. I've seen parents that are, are prisoners to their own children. Do your kids run your life, determine your schedule, dictate your life? Or do you have boundaries in raising your children? Such as bedtime. You may say, well, these are little things. Well, teenagers will test the durability of your walls and boundaries, right? I mean, there's no way around it. If you and I have not set some boundaries and some perimeters in our life and different relationships that we value. In other words, there's a time that me and my wife, we are alone. We need that intimacy. We don't need no one, not even the kids coming into that boundary, into that perimeter. Does that make sense? We live in a day where children often control the parent to the degree the parent can't have any freedom at all. In your marriage, you need boundaries. You and I need boundaries with the opposite sex. You know, Billy Graham said this. He said he and his team, at the very beginning, when they first started out, he said they made this commitment that they would never be alone with a woman. Men and women, let me counsel you. You need boundaries around your marriage, and there are some things in your life that you put perimeters, you put boundaries, and you just simply do not go there. It's critical. When we read that the walls of Jerusalem had come down, we need to understand that once the walls came down around Jerusalem, the Jewish people were susceptible to their enemy. In fact, let me tell you this, and it's so important, sin will not recognize your boundaries. Sin, our enemy, Satan, is in the business of getting you and I to compromise moral absolutes, those boundaries, to base decisions on what satisfies the flesh, what makes us feel good rather than what is right. Is there bound? Listen, we don't have boundaries about nothing. We're the most in debt. We're, our, our, our longevity for the first time has gone backwards. And the reason it's gone backwards is because we can't even control ourselves when we eat. The reality is that if you and I are not careful, we live our lives and we have no boundaries at all around nothing that we value because the reality is we're undisciplined and it's not that somebody else tore down the walls, we took them down ourselves. Jim Collins said this. He said, determine what you don't do. Determine what you don't do. You ever thought about that, what you don't do? You know, here at Southside, we, we had to discover some things about dealing with homeless, about dealing with people on the streets. Because we had people all the time coming wanting pain pills. Will you help me? Will you go down to the pharmacy and help me get my pain pills? And we begin to discover something that a lot of times people that are homeless and people on the streets and people that are in low-income situations, a lot of those, part of their problem is drug addictions to painkillers. So we had to stop giving up the kind of assistance to painkillers. We could help with antibiotics. We couldn't do painkillers. Let me ask you something. Are there some things you just don't do? Have you figured out what you don't do? We determined something. We could give food. We could give clothing. But we couldn't put everybody who came up and told us a sad story, we couldn't put them in a hotel because we couldn't afford it. We had to determine as a church... 
in an area of great need what we could do and what we could not do. Let me ask you a question. What do you not do? What do you not listen to? What do you not watch? What do you not wear? What inappropriate t-shirt with some logo you will not wear? What swimsuits will you not wear? What evening gownless, uh, what I call evening gownless straps? What do you not listen to? What filthy lyrics are you just simply say, we just don't do that? In your home, do you have walls that are erected around your home, boundaries to which you've said to the enemy, we will not compromise and we will not conform. Paul warned the church at at Romans, he said, and be not conformed to this world because the world is trying to push you into its form. And for a lot of us, maybe we need to reevaluate this thing of what walls, boundaries, perimeters need to be set up around our home. These are things that we just simply don't do. There are some walls that are very intimate. Let me ask you a question. In Job chapter 1, without looking, you remember the scene. The, the angels are standing up there waiting. They're fouling up there before God. And the Bible says that Lucifer, Satan, Diabolos, the devil, he's, he comes up before God. And God says to him, where have you been? He says, oh, just been roaming, roaming to and fro. He probably looked about like I'm looking right now. And the Lord God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's none more righteous than him. Now listen, what made Satan mad? Anybody know? What made Satan angry? What made Satan angry was this. He said, God, you have put a hedge. You have put a wall. You have put a fortress around him and I can't get to him. Let me tell you sometimes the enemy is attacking our lives not because God has allowed the hedge to come down. And God can do that. There are times, what did Jesus say? I hold you in the palm of my hand and no man can pluck you out. So what does that teach me? That teaches me that if something's coming into my life, that undoubtedly it had to come through the hand of God first. Right? Satan can't touch Job until Job convinces God that he needs to let down the hedge. It is only then that he afflicts Job. And he's still under the sovereign hand of God. God's still in control of the devil. The devil roams about like a roaring lion, but he's on God's chain. God can jerk him back anytime he wants to. But the walls are critical in our lives. And it's not easy when you and I have allowed our boundaries, we put down our guard, we took down our perimeters, we've begun to allow things to slip in. We start watching this, listening to this, befriending this. Before long, we're doing this, we're doing that. And before long, the walls are in ruin around our lives. And I don't want no more children to get up and walk out of this building. That's a wall. Why? Because if we can't learn to sit here and understand the value of going to the bathroom before we come in here, then that's why JPS is having all the problems that it's having. You see, there has to be walls. And see, in your day, you think, well, that's, he, that he's, just, that, he's just mean. No, I'm not mean. 
I love every child that gets up and runs out of here. I'd die for them. But this was also the way I was raised. You see, it's never easy to rebuild walls. It's never easy to put up perimeters. It's never easy to come back and to reestablish boundaries. Let me give you an example again. As a parent, sometimes what happens, you begin to just give up. Your child hits the teenage years and you just, you just do like my dad does. Y'all just tell you, you can have it. <laughs> you just give up. You just say, you know, the peer pressure and, and this and that, and you just finally give up and you throw in the towel. You can't beat them, you join them. And you sacrifice your kids. Rather than pulling up your boxers, being a man and saying, no, you won't do that. You won't watch that. You won't listen to that. No, we don't do that in this home. And no, we're not going to watch that movie. And no, you're not going to go on that date. No, you're not going to go with that person. You're just not going to do that. You see, the reality is in our lives that it's hard to rebuild walls. Alexander McLaren went on to say this because he says that Nehemiah took time to pray over the ruins. He said, Nehemiah moved around the ruins alone in prayer, gaining the counsel of God. Now listen to what he said. He said, the beginning of Nehemiah's work of repair was that sad midnight ride around the ruined walls. So there is a solemn obligation laid on Christian people to acquaint themselves with the awful facts, then to meditate on them till they are sacred. Now that's powerful. You see, you and I can't reestablish any walls, any perimeters, any boundaries until we first get along with God in prayer. We need Jesus Christ to help us reestablish some kind of order to our lives. The Old Testament, I thought this was good. The Old Testament is walls from without, such as in Nehemiah's day. The New Testament is walls within. Does that make sense? The law is not on pieces of stone. The law is now impressed into my heart. God now controls me from the inside out, but there's still walls. Notice three things real quickly about Nehemiah. In verses 11 and 12, chapter 2, he said he went around Jerusalem, but he kept the matter to himself. There are some things in your life and in my life we need to keep to ourselves. We need to mull over. We need to pray about. We need to just, we need to allow God to let it simmer for a period of time. Secondly, in verses 14 and 15, there was a persistent pilgrimage. Notice there came a point that he could not get around. The Bible says in verse 14, he said, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. He couldn't get his horse or his donkey through there. But he's persistent. He tries to figure out a way. Now, everybody listen closely. If you've got a, if you've got a child that you can't control at bedtime and they are wreaking havoc in the household. They control the emotions of mom and dad. They make your life miserable. You just dread even trying to put them in the bed because of how they behave. The problem is, is they are controlling the boundaries and the perimeters and not the parent. So the parent has to reestablish a bedtime. Now listen, when you do that and you haven't been doing it, you can get ready, right? There's going to be some battles. They're going to come. And you, listen, you need to, you need to pray about it first. God, 
I need you to help me with this. I want to reestablish some boundaries, some, be, uh, some proper behavior. I want to reestablish some walls in my life. Uh, so, so God, I need you to help me with it. There's that prayer. But then secondly, there's that persistence of just simply saying, when, when you begin to feel the pressure to be able to say, well, I'm just not going to bend on this. Because listen, if you can't handle the six-year-old who's fighting you about bedtime, then let me ask you something. How are you going to handle the teenager who by that time has learned that you have no boundaries? You have no perimeters. In your workplace, you may have to put your foot down and establish some strong boundaries and perimeters as to your life. Thirdly, notice in verse 17 and 18, there was a public petition. What was in prayer, what was persistent, he finally made public. In verse 17 and 18, he had kept it to himself. But finally, he looked at those around him, even the leadership, and he basically began to share his heart. And I love these words in the latter part of verse 17 and 18. He said, we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. When you, you know, I thought to myself, you know, you get ready to fly to uh, Zimbabwe. That's a long flight. And do you know how most people, even Christian people, respond to that? I hope y'all are safe. Huh? And even if they pray for you, they pray for you like you're getting on the space shuttle. I mean, you know. And, and, and one day, I was sitting there, and, and I was thinking about that, and the enemy was kind of mulling that around in my head. You know, a little bit of fear, a little bit of anxiety, when all of a sudden I came to this passage that all the nations may know and I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. How are they going to know unless somebody goes? Three weeks from today, Midian Shitsede, a pastor from Zimbabwe, will be behind this pulpit preaching to you. He will be telling you about one of the greatest humanitarian crises in the world today. You will have an opportunity to hear a man who is the product of our mission and our missionaries, who's now faithfully serving the Lord. But he would have never known. He would have never been educated. He wouldn't have the home that he has now. He wouldn't have the substance that he has now had it not been for men who went last time. He's persistent. He makes it public. He says, listen, we'll no longer be in disgrace. He said, my God's hand is on me. And, what the, and he says, and the king is behind this. Let me tell you something. The king of kings is behind it. Adrian Rogers said, the safest place for any of us to be is in the will of God. Now, real quickly, one more thing. When you look at chapter 3, verse verse verses 1 through 5, and especially verse 5. Because you're, you get into Nehemiah, and guess what happens? The people, Nehemiah gets there, he rallies them up. Boy, they're all excited. You know, it's kind of like school. You know, when you first start school, you get a book bag. Then you go get your books, and the smell of those new books. Ah, new books. You got your pencils, your pens. 
you got your notepad and you got a little assignment pad. You really, you remember those? The assignment pad. I'm going to keep up with all my homework this year. And anytime the teacher gives us an assignment, I'm going to write it in my little pad here. And you start school. And then about a month or two into it, you look in your book bag. First of all, your books are in the back dash of the car and they're curling up, right? The assignment pad, you can't even find it. Your book bag now contains a half-eaten little Debbie and a few Fritos down in the bottom of it. Let me tell you, folks, a lot of times what happens to you and I when we know God's will and purpose for our lives, we start out like Usain Bolt. You've seen the Jamaican, the fastest man in the world? He's tremendous. He's unbelievable. 100 meter, 200 meter. In fact, this past week in the Olympics, here's Usain Bolt running by his, his competition and laughing at him. He's laughing as he's winning the gold medal. Don't you wish he could be that fast? But you don't see him running a marathon. He's good for the short distance. But he would tell you real good that he couldn't run the 1500 meter. He can't run the 800 meter. He would tell you real quickly that he's good at a short distance. Let me tell you what happens to a lot of us. We know God's will for our lives. We know God's purpose. We know God wants us to rebuild some walls, get rid of some rubble, and reestablish some priorities and even perimeters and some boundaries to our life. We know that. But the reality is, if we were honest, We're quick to tell God, God, I know all of that is true and I'll do it tomorrow. You know, in the book of Exodus, there came a plague of frogs. Do you remember that? The frogs, there are frogs everywhere. And Moses goes to Pharaoh because Pharaoh summons him. And Moses, Pharaoh is repentant. And, and so Moses says to Pharaoh, he says, okay, uh, Pharaoh, I can call off this plague. When do you want me to do it? Anybody know what Pharaoh said? Tomorrow. I remember a preacher years ago, I heard him preach this passage. He said, the reality is that's like a lot of us. We simply say to God, God, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll diet tomorrow. I'll get control of the kids tomorrow. I I know I need to exercise, I'll do that tomorrow. I I know I need to drink more water, I'll do that tomorrow. I I know I need to have more time in in the Bible, in the Word of God, I'll I'll start tomorrow morning. Everybody look this way. The best thing and the best time to start is right now, today. Let's stand. Let's stand. Abraham Lincoln said this. He said, determine that the thing can and shall be done, and then we shall find a way to do it. The people began to be discouraged They begin to be defeated. In verse 5 of chapter 3, it said the leaders didn't put their heart into it. They didn't put their back to it. And before long, 
the people were struggling. And maybe that's you today. Maybe today, maybe right now, God is dealing with you. Maybe there's some things in your life, some ruin, some rubble. Maybe there's some things right now in your life that God has said, I want you. You may be a parent here. And you may be one of those parents that your children dictate. They run every bit of your life. You don't have no life. Your life is your children. Let me tell you something. That's a sin. That's a sin. You may be here today and you say, Brother Jeff, I'm just in addiction to to diet. Uh, My health is poor. I know it. I know there are changes I need to make. But the truth of the matter is, there's no boundaries. I, I don't know when to say no. Some of you, it may be a friendship that you need to say no to. Some of you, it may be a program that you're watching. Whatever it may be, I don't know. Some of you, it may be to set aside that devotional time and to say, God, just right now, wall me in with your word and intimate fellowship with you. I need this. But listen, you can't do that until you've given him your heart, given him your life. And the only way to do that is by inviting him in. Let me tell you what, God will never bust up into your walled-in fortress. He said, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man hears my voice and will open the door, I will come in and fellowship with him and eat with me. He won't bust in. He won't, bu- he won't kick down your door. He won't walk into your walled-in fortress unless you invite him in. And when he becomes the Lord and master of your life, he becomes your wall. He's your fortress. That's why Paul talks about being in Christ. Are you in him? Do you know him? Have you given him your life? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you love us. Lord, it's been a tough few days. Uh, Lord, I've done my best this morning. But Lord, uh, preaching and sharing your word and challenging people is only effective when your Holy Spirit works in the hearts of those who receive it. And I pray, dear Lord, in the name of Jesus, that whoever it may be here today who says, Brother Jeff, you're right, my marriage is in rubble, in ruin, my parenting is in ruin, I'm beginning to feel that even now, my health is in ruin. My relationship with Christ is, 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 is in ruin. There's just rubble. I've allowed so much to come into my life in what I'm watching, what I'm listening to, the lyrics of some of the music, uh, friendships and peers and things that have begun to pull me down and affect me. I've just simply looked around my life and you're right, Brother Jeff. A lot of it is in rubble and ruin. And I pray right now, dear Lord, if there's one here that says, Lord, I need you to help me. I, I, I can't do this by myself. I need you to help me reestablish some order to my life, to my marriage, to my home, to my children, to my life, to my diet, to my, to my ability to get a hold of my health. Because I have an enemy and he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. So right now, Lord Jesus, for those that are just repentant and saying, Lord, help me. Would you hear their heart? 
Would you come alongside of them? Would you encourage them right now and strengthen them to begin to clear away the rubble, the ruin, and you, dear Lord Jesus, begin to rebuild those boundaries, those walls, those perimeters in their life? Lord, would you help us do this today? And Lord, I pray for those that may not know you that they would be saved today. God, would you speak to their heart? And if they're not in Christ today, that they would give their life to Christ. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.